You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 52, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Michael Jacobus, the founder of Reset Summer Camp, a four-week residential summer camp for teenagers with technology addiction, whether it be to video games or social media or videos. As you'll hear about in the interview, Reset Summer Camp is a unique program that starts with a technology detox and then provides its campers with exposure to new ways of living with and without technology, including guidance for parents during and after the program. You can find out more about Reset Summer Camp at ResetSummerCamp.com. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Michael Jacobus to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the interview that you're about to hear with Michael Jacobus, you'll hear him mention that one of the most common reasons that kids at his summer camp site for turning to technology is just that they're bored. And I think we can all relate to that and how easy and tempting it is to turn to technology when we feel bored. So today's tip is for people of any age for how you can try to change that habit of waking up your phone, going onto social media or watching a video or doing something else online in reaction to feeling boredom. The first thing I suggest is that you make a plan in advance for what it is that you're going to do instead of turn to your phone or other device when you feel bored. It's very difficult to react in the moment in a different way if you haven't set your intention and plans beforehand. So pick something else that you're going to do when you get bored. It might be to stand up and take a walk or take a few breaths or meet with a friend, go for a run. Who knows what it is? But whatever it is, pick something that you feel will be healthy and supportive to you that doesn't involve the use of technology that you're going to do the next time you feel bored and tempted to pick up your phone. You may have to practice this for a while. You may need to sit with it in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and prepare yourself for doing this other thing, whatever it is, when you feel bored. Then it'll be more likely that the next time you feel bored and you know that that time will come, that you'll be able to notice oh, you know what, I'm feeling bored now and I'm, I'm feeling tempted to just reactively, instinctively pick up my phone, play a game, watch a video, text a friend, uh, do something else. And instead, you'll be more likely to remember to do that other thing you thought of. And you know what? You may fail. You may not remember. You may go and do that thing online that you r- instinctively do Try not to be uh, self-judgmental about it. Keep trying. Uh, let's say you forget, and then later you realize, oh, I was going to go for a walk. Okay, reset your intention. Remind yourself. Try to uh, imagine yourself going for a walk the next time you feel bored, and keep working on it. Keep practicing. And I ask that you try that, and then see if you're able to shift your habits, develop a new habit. And of course, I'm suggesting that you turn to a different activity. Uh, That's only one thing. The other thing you can, of course, plan and practice doing is to just sit with your boredom. You can plan to meditate, feel your boredom, and just be present with it. You don't have to substitute an activity that involves moving or doing something. There's any of a variety of things you can do, include doing 
nothing, so to speak, but sitting and being present with the boredom and exploring it, how you're feeling in your body or what you're thinking is not necessarily doing nothing. You can think of it as an active way of engaging with and diving into that boredom in order to learn more about it. I hope that you find that helpful, and I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Michael Jacobus. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me on. It's really great to have you. We have a lot of parents who listen to the podcast and and read the blog, and I'm really glad to have you on so that people can learn about what you're doing at Reset Summer Camp. Maybe you could start by just giving us the brief introduction to what it is and what motivated you to launch it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Reset Summer Camp is a four-week clinical summer program for teenagers, mostly. We get a couple older and a couple younger, but mostly teenagers who are suffering from uh, excessive screen time, social media, technology habits, and uh, gaming addiction behaviors. What I've done is taken the summer camp model, and I've worked in summer camp for over 30 years, so I have a real love and passion for the curative experience of kids going away to summer camp. And I've taken that model into a therapeutic design. Our program happens on college campuses, and the kids are in dorm rooms, so they get a feel for what it's going to be like to live on your own or go to college or rent an apartment and have a roommate and cook for yourself and do your own laundry. And so we do a lot of life skills in our program. And like I said, all the kids that come have various issues dealing with screen time and gaming addiction. So Throughout the course of the four-week program, in addition to the life skills and some general summer camp activities, we do a lot of group and individual therapy programs as well. So I now have PhD and clinicians on my staff, which I never had in a traditional environment. It takes us about the full four weeks. Our, Our clinical director called it the sweet spot because the first week is all detox and none of the kids want to be there and they don't have a problem. Their parents have a problem and Mm -hmm. issues like that. And then, you know, by the second week, we call it accepting their fate that they're here and they're, they're here for a couple more weeks. And by the third week, they're, you know, making friends and socializing and learning new activities and playing the guitar and learning to cook and doing all kinds of cool stuff. And then by the fourth week, they're, they're kind of back to who they were before they were lost in screens. Mm. And we end the program with a, a weekend long family workshop where the parents show up and spend a couple nights and we do activities and we talk about what the kids presented with and what they've learned and what goals they've set and try to get the whole family on a on a better track. It's, it sounds really amazing. I, I wonder if you could tell us what kinds of situations are the parents dealing with and are the kids in you know, who are coming to this camp? Be really specific because if there's parents out there who are, are dealing with something that might feel overwhelming to them or that they feel hopeless about, you know, I think it might be helpful for them to hear you know, just how intense some of the, the situations are that you deal with at the camp. Absolutely. We kind of say that we are on the edge or we teeter in between different kinds of programming and we do a, a pretty thorough screening of the parent's application before the child is accepted into the program because we want to make sure that that they can benefit and that the parents are on board. When we talk about the types of kids that come, we usually say that, you know, if the kids' grades are starting to get really bad, if the behavior at home is starting to get really unacceptable, 
um, if they're not participating in family activities, you know, if they're showing basically signs of addiction, those are the kids that we deal with. There are more extreme programs like wilderness programs that are for the kids that have completely dropped out of school and are stealing, you know, parents' credit cards for buying in-app purchases and games and stuff like that. We see a little bit of that, but uh, it's really the whole gamut. I mean, we deal with everything from the teenage girls who are dramatically over-sexualized by Snapchat and Instagram profiles. So they're uh, you know wearing too much makeup and not enough clothing, and they're sending suggestive photos of themselves, and their entire body image is, and self-worth is tied to how many likes they get and how fast they get those likes. We deal with, like I said, gamers, uh, who are the kids that are just playing games like Fortnite and Apex and those kind of things all the time. And then the middle-of-the-road kids are what we call the streamers, and those are kids that are just getting constant content. So it could be Netflix or YouTube or porn or music or or Twitch, or other kind of sites that they might not be gaming themselves, but their entire lives stem from their online persona. I, I have a dear friend, uh, Dr. Deborah Gilboa, who does the Ask Dr. G stuff. And she says, uh, parents are digital immigrants, and our children are digital natives. So one of the communication challenges we have is, you know, like my mother never got bad language from me when she told me to turn off Pac-Man or Space Invaders or mm -hmm. I was playing pinball. But that was my generation. And now, you know, these games and social media sites are, are designed to be addictive and to keep you on for as long as possible. And the behavior and the lack of impulse control and the lack of sleep and, you know, all the things that go with it for today's kids is just a challenge parents have never seen before. Yeah, now you and I spoke uh, recently about this uh, before the podcast interview, and you know I know we were talking about the fact that we hope that parents can can feel some self compassion, you know, or maybe maybe ease up on the self judgment about how much of this might be their fault, you know, when when they can see just how much they're up against in terms of the technology being designed to be addictive, as you've said. You know, I know there was concern about television in the 60s and 70s, which is very real and valid. But can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is different or what about the current technology that goes a step beyond anything we've seen before? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I talk to parent groups, people in our generation are familiar with the movie The Perfect Storm. And I will show them a picture of a, a fishing boat on a nice, calm bay. And I'll say, this was my parents' challenge when I was a kid, you know, playing Atari games. And then I'll show that final photo of the big tidal wave and the ship mm -hmm. almost vertical and about to go upside down and everybody dies. And I'll mm -hmm. say, this is what parents today deal with. You know, gaming and, and social media companies used to hire graphic designers and musicians. And now they're hiring people with psychology degrees and brain chemistry specialists and behavior management teams. And they're doing anything they can to make the game or the social media site more relevant and more important and more dominating in a kid's life. So when I talk to parents, I, I can't tell you how many times I hear the word guilt or shame. You know, they feel like terrible parents because they've allowed this to happen. And I suppose there's a certain factor of that where you could agree with that kind of thing. Like you said, back in the day, my parents were worried about how much TV I was watching. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have the army against them like parents do today. So I, I always tell parents to give yourself a break because nobody has ever experienced what you're experiencing. Nobody has ever had this enemy uh, facing you to attack your children like parents today do. 
Yeah, I've, I heard it described as today's technology as the greatest experiment ever conducted on children in history. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really, really apt. So given the fact that this is what parents are, are up against, and you know, one thing from what you said that struck me when you mentioned things like Netflix, YouTube, social media, and porn all together, you know, it, it struck me that it's not just about harmful content per se. You know, we might think of porn particularly violent or particularly degrading or porn being seen by kids who are too young all as being about a problem with the content. You know, but what you're pointing out is even content like uh, some harmless YouTube video, which in moderation may not cause a problem. If kids are watching it to an extent that it comes to the detriment of their ability to do their schoolwork or engage with their family or sleep enough, even that can become a real problem. Yeah, absolutely. When I talk to uh, kids at camp or parent groups, it's funny because I'll say, how many of you sleep with your cell phone, you know, with your iPhone within arm's reach? And almost universally, everyone raises their hands, Mm -hmm. kid or adult. And the overriding I call it excuse is, well, it's my alarm clock or, you know, I I only listen to music and and things like that. And I'm like, you know, at Walmart, you can buy an alarm clock for nine bucks. And a lot of the stuff we talk to parents about, especially in our um, parent resource materials for during and after camp is setting a good example because you can kick yourself all day about being a rotten parent and allowing this to happen. And the truth of the matter is whether that's true or not, it's, it's happening. So how do we deal with what's going on? And setting that example and changing your own personal habits is something that parents really struggle with. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I know we're going to talk mostly about what you do at the program for the kids who attend, but you did mention this weekend with parents and their children. What what kinds of things do you do to help teach or guide or train parents to change how they interact with technology or to interact differently with their kids to set a better example or perhaps provide better guidance? Well, one of my favorite things is we provide some resources for the parents during camp so that they can better prepare their home life for when the child returns from camp. So they can develop some new habits on their own. They can decide that we're not going to have technology in the kid's bedroom anymore. You know, we encourage them to have those conversations before camp, but also to prepare during camp. So when the kid comes home, there's there's sort of a different reality. In the parent workshop, we actually, we do group therapy with the entire family unit, but we also do some camp activities. The kids very often involve the parents in cooking one of the meals that they learned in the culinary class. We want them to rebuild the family unit. The best example I give to parents, and I, I like to tease my clinical director because I'm not a therapist, so I can I can say things that a therapist wouldn't say, and I hear the word fix all the time. Can you fix mm-hmm. my kid? And obviously, a therapist would never say yes because they need the history <laughs> and the medical background and you know chapters and chapters of stuff. And I'll just come right out and say, yeah, I can fix your kid, but I'm going to fix your kid and treat him like a flat tire. I can pull the nail out, I can patch him, and I can put air back in him but that I'm going to send him home and he's been driven on nails. Mm-hmm. So what do we, you know, I, I, it's not about fixing the kid. It's about fixing the home environment. And in the therapy in camp, we talk to the child about what it is that is drawing them to screens or games, what they're escaping from, what pleasure they get out of being on screens. And then we share that in the family workshop to see if we can't all work together to create a different reality where that escape might not be as necessary. 
No, that's amazing. That's amazing. What are some examples of the most common things you hear from the kids? I'm sure there's some themes that have been emerging when you do ask them, what draws you to this? What is actually enjoyable about it? What doesn't feel so good, but you do it anyway? What are the common themes that emerge? Well, the thing I hear most is bored. I'm bored. So, I mean, any parent will know that we hear that word all the time. We can be at Disneyland and we're mm-hmm. bored. So that, that's kind of an overriding excuse for why people do stuff. But, you know, when you're playing games, there's that rush of dopamine when you win or succeed or buy something. So that's an actual comparable to an addictive behavior, good feeling. So the more of that, the better. I just want, I want dopamine hits all day long. Mm-hmm. What we're kind of learning is the, the opposite of addiction is connection. So these kids are by themselves in their rooms, usually with their headphones on. So the parents are really enjoying the quiet, but they don't realize what's going on because Mm. they can't hear anything. Kids get to be, especially the uh, large majority of the boys who are gamers, get to be the superhero or the warrior or some some sort of rock star and they, they don't feel that in their regular lives. So they get to do that alternate persona. And then obviously the, the victories and the wins and, and any, any sort of uh, rank. I, I talked to a parent this morning who's very frustrated with his 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. And his 18-year-old wants to be a Fortnite coach. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, there's, there's a career that didn't exist. <laughs> He's also ranked 4,500 you know, out of the over 2 million people that play. So on the one hand, celebrate. <laughs> and yeah. on the other hand, let's learn how to do our laundry and take the trash out. Right. Uh, because there's a lot of real life, <laughs> a lot of real life that, that kids don't know how to do, that parents are, I don't like using the word enabling, but that parents do enable uh, and allow to, to not happen. So, I mean, that's kind of what kids are being drawn to, you know, uh, social relevance, which the reverse is, you know, the cyberbullying. Uh, when you take a, a group photo and don't tag somebody, now all of a sudden that person's the outcast. You know, it's it's just so much for parents to keep up with. And every time I do a parent presentation, I'm like, as soon as I'm done talking, everything I said will be obsolete. <laughs> because yeah. the next social media platform will pop up, the next app will pop up, the next hidden communication portal will pop up. So there's no way to keep up with it all other than being in good communication with your kids. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that although the platform might change, the particular app might change, fundamental communication skills and skills for doing things like learning how to be present with your own boredom or deal with your own boredom in other ways are going to be applicable or transferable to any technology that comes along. I mean, what exactly. if you could, yeah, speak a little bit about boredom. You know, I mean, I've witnessed it. Growing up and as an adult, seeing people with with children, that the culture in many ways seems to have increasingly sent the message over the years that there's something wrong with a kid being bored. Maybe that the parent is inadequate for allowing the kid to have any time when they're when they're bored or not engaged in some exciting activity. And then the culture has provided, you know, just in such incredibly increased opportunities to escape boredom at virtually any time. What kinds of things do you do to try to work against that really powerful tide in our culture? It does go beyond technology alone. I oh, think. sure. Well, I mean, the first thing we do is identify it because kids individually left to their own devices, 
don't know how to deal with that. One of our educational sessions at camp is called healthy boredom, that it's okay to be bored. It's okay not Mm -hmm. to be stimulated constantly all the time. And we do things around mindfulness and, and guided meditation and a few other things like that. But we deliberately plan time in our calendar for boring activities or, mm. or lack of activities. <laughs> we do things like uh, change up their roommate assignments or maybe we'll fake a breakdown on a field trip mm-hmm. just to create an uncomfortable situation because it's okay. The world still turns. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot with the kids about that because they're not used to that. Society, like you just said, does, does not help with mm-hmm. the, uh, you've, you've got to be doing something all the time. And if you don't, you're something wrong with you. Yeah. Right now there's something that's growing in popularity called uh, content shaming. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but no. uh, I saw a link to, uh, it was some investor thing, you know, do you want to, you want to save for retirement and it's an ad and you click on the ad. And uh, if you click, yes, it says, yes, I want to plan for my retirement. And basically you're opting into somebody's email list. If you right. click yes. But the no button didn't just say no. It said, no, I like being poor. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, so there's, there's content-driven things that we don't even recognize that are causing a, an urgency. Right. Fortnite we talk about a lot because um, a lot of kids are spending a ton of money, usually their parents' money, in the game. And parents will say, well, the game's supposed to be free. I don't understand. Well, in between games, you go back to what's called the lobby, and you can't just be bored. You can't just wait for the next game to start, or heaven forbid, go do your chores. In the lobby is when you get sales pitches for dance moves and new outfits. I think they're called skins for what your character looks like. And there's a ticking clock. You know, mm-hmm. And, and uh, right, I remember this came up right after the Super Bowl. And you could change your character to look like one of the, one of the team players, like a football player. And all your friends are buying it and it's twenty four ninety five, and you better buy it in the next 10 seconds, make that nine seconds, make that eight seconds. And if you don't buy it, you're a big loser in seven seconds and six seconds. And, and, and it creates that, oh my God, cortisol fight or flight kind of thing. Nobody is comfortable just, just being, just right. being bored. And we don't call it bored. I mean, we talk about healthy boredom, but we just talk about being, being in the moment, listening to the wind, listening to birds, smelling the food you're cooking, just, just being. What is it like for these kids? I imagine it's probably a pretty radically new experience to do things like that. Just, you know, smell the food that they're cooking while not being on a screen, for example. Yeah, it is. And, and that whole first week is pretty rough because a lot of the sleep deprivation is, is a big issue, but also the lack of being able to have my needs fulfilled online immediately, you know, is, is, a, is a source of great anxiety, sometimes panic. So dealing with these kids as they detox and come off their devices and interact with other live human beings and deal with, you know, lights out bedtime and deal with meals happening at very specific times, not when you feel hungry, so you'll grab a bag of chips is a new experience. And it's kind of a battle that first week. And that's kind of why I say we can't really do what we do in a after school program or a weekend retreat. You know, I need the full four weeks to detox these kids get them back on a schedule, get them used to living without their devices, and then actually get them, you know, to recognize that, that there's a whole world out there and there's things to do and people to meet, none of which have anything to do with screens. You know, on the one hand, it sounds like, uh, understandably, the program is very intense. Uh, on the other hand, 
You know, when I hear you say you do the detox for a week, I'm sure it's not a complete 100% cure at that point. But uh, on the other hand, I think, well, that's actually not all that long a time to make some significant progress if what you're up against is pretty much a lifetime of having been acclimated or to, to the state of the way technology is now in their lives. What kind of state do you, I'm sure it varies from kid to kid, situation to situation. What kind of progress, if you will, do you see at the end of that week or what kind of state are they in often at the end of that week compared to when they came in? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we do have some kids that have acknowledged even to their parents that they have a problem and are looking forward to, to the camp experience. Most of the kids are not that way. And they'll say that their parents have a problem, they don't have a problem, and things like that. And it takes you know that t- that detox time, and it can be as short as a couple days, and it can be as long as a week and a half, maybe two weeks sometimes. And I don't mean that they're just sitting pouting and not participating, but they're they're making it very obvious that they don't belong here, and there's been some mistake, and you know they're fine, and you know all the objections you normally get. One of the things I found uh, quite shocking because it never happened in my camp experience before. Mm-hmm was we let the kids uh, write letters home and they write on a piece of paper and actually we scan it and email it to the parents. Wow. And then the parents can email back and we, we print those out and, and have like a mail call in the evening. That's great. Um, but a lot of the kids write horrible, horrible things during that first week. Mm. You know, dear mom, F you, mm-hmm. you effing B word. <laughs> you know, I yeah, mean, it's yeah. just this horrible, horrible stuff. We sort of prepare the parents for that, not like they've never heard this before. You know, the, the, my migraines have come back and I, I feel bullied here or, you know, any excuse they can write down to make mom drop everything and come rescue yeah. them to take them home where their devices are. And what's funny is we tell them that the parents are already onto them. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we already prepped them that you would say these things. And we contact the parents all the time and they can call and talk to our therapists. We just try to get the kids, you know, other than writing a letter home, uh, they call home once a week just to check in. And they might say the same things, but then we'll talk to the parents and you know let them know. We, we have yet to have a kid leave our program because their uh, non-gaming migraines had, had made them unable to, <laughs> to participate. Yeah. We have sent a few kids home because they were more extreme than we could deal with, which is why we kind of stepped up our screening process yes. for this year. Like you can't just enroll in our camp. You can apply, and then a clinician calls you back after you've answered all the intake questions and has a more in-depth conversation about your child, mostly to see if they'll be a good fit, because right. we want everyone to succeed, and we want the parents to participate. Yeah. So if you just want to park your kid somewhere for the summer, go somewhere else. Yeah, that seems really very responsible to me. And also, you know, it raises this this issue about the letter. I mean, I laughed at it, but of course, it's very serious The kids cursing at their parents. It makes me wonder, and I, I know we said earlier, this is not to judge or blame the parents, but I, you know, it does make me wonder whether some of the parents uh, maybe, how should I put it, have a low threshold for their kids being angry or upset with them. It, it feels to me like a bit of an older, older style of parenting that, that's not around as often for a parent to be comfortable with their kids saying, mommy, daddy, I hate you. You're horrible. You're so mean to me. And the parents saying, I understand you feel that way, but I'm still going to do what I'm going to do, which is you're not getting your dessert until you finish your dinner or something like that. <laughs> and yeah. that, that kind of attitude or, or, uh, ability of the parent to feel comfortable with their child being really upset at them may be less common than it used to be. I don't know if this is if this has any truth from your experience. 
Oh, tons of truth. We actually, we actually talk about that with the kids in therapy during camp and during the parent workshop, because we'll say it's okay to be your child's parent. You mm-hmm. don't need to be their friend to still have a good relationship with them. And so much of that, I think, is built from the habitual behavior of the parents. You know, it's hard to tell your kid to get off their phone at the dinner table if you're on yours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kids learn so much more by what they observe than what you tell them. And one of the reasons we have like uh, clinical interns on our staff is they're close in age to these kids. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be eight, nine, ten years older, and they're going to listen to those people a whole lot quicker than they're going to listen to the crotchety old camp director like me. <laughs> right. So, kids, kids have a great hypocrisy radar, I think, for their parents. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, I talk, to, I talk to parents all the time about how frustrated they are and they don't know what to do. And I really try to keep my internal judgy commentary to myself because we've all been there. I am the parent of a former gaming addicted kid. If, if my now 26-year-old had been 16 uh, when this camp was around, he, I would have sent him because mm-hmm. it was, it's so frustrating and it's a daily battle. And that's why we don't do the in-home or the after-school program, because it's got to be somewhere where the kid realizes this is their life to live, and how do they want to live it? You know, when every kid arrives, we tell them this isn't punishment camp, uh, because they all think it is, or most of them do. I'm like, this is learn how to get what you want in life camp. Chances are being on YouTube 20 hours a day is not the path. Mm. Chances are calling your mom those horrible, vulgar words is probably not going to get you where you want to be. And so we'll talk about college and we'll talk about jobs and life and, you know, earning money and living on your own. And, you know, it, it sounds daunting when you throw it all at once. But over the course of the four-week therapy, we, we have them actually leaving with those kind of thoughts about what they want their future to be like, not who's going to win the next game. Wow. And, and what do you see there? One, I mean, do you find that those are things that they have not been engaging with or have been avoiding through the technology use intentionally or not? You know, is this something now new for them to really be engaging with those kinds of questions in their, in their life? Well, it's things that they've heard, but uh, it, it's too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's just easier to play my game. Right. And we kind of talk about, um, you know, one, one young man <laughs> wrote this horrible letter and I called him into my office, not because of the letter, but he was mm-hmm. walking by. I said, Michael, how old are you? And he said, 15. And, you know, his shoulders are up and he's, he's bigger than I am and he's 15 years old and he's all tough. And I said, so in 10 years, you'll be, and I deliberately did the stupid finger counting. You know, I'm like, in 10 mm-hmm. years, you'll be 16, 17, 18, 25. <laughs> and he's looking at me like I'm an idiot who can't even count. <laughs> and I'll say, so 25, you'll be out of college and probably living on your own, like have a job, making your own money, have your own car, that kind of thing. And he's like, of course. And, you know, internally, I'm like, <laughs> I hope right. so. And then I picked up the letter he had written home because I hadn't scanned it yet. And I said, you're still going to be the kid that called his mom the mm-hmm. F and B word. And you can see his shoulders sort of deflate a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's do another 10. I'm like 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 35. 10 more years, you'll be 35. You might be married, have your own house. You might even have kids. How cool would that be? Your mom would be a grandmother, and I'm sure she'd be looking forward to that, and that would be super fun. And then I picked the letter back up. Still going to be the kid, mm-hmm. you know, who's corroding his relationship with the people who love him and probably pay the bill for his phone and his games and his whatever. Do you really want me to fax this letter? Mm-hmm. 
And, and to me, that was a fabulous therapeutic moment from the non-therapist. Right. Because, you know, when I said that, he's all deflated, completely deflated. And then he took the letter out of my hand, crumpled it up, threw it in the trash and said, I guess not. And, you know, it's like mom and dad have heard those words plenty of times already. Do, do you really think you need to call your mom that name one more time? Because yeah. you don't want to be here for two more weeks? Mm-hmm. You know, they think, especially because of social media and gaming, I think, they only think in the next 30 seconds. Yes. You know, or, or make that 10 seconds or five seconds. Right. You know, no, nobody thinks about the damage being done to the, the family unit and the relationships with your family and your friends and school and all that other kind of stuff. We show a lot of uh, Brene Brown videos, especially the one on empathy and blame. Mm-hmm. And we actually had some kids in tears after seeing it a couple of times because wow. they start to realize, you know, they're really treating the people who love them horribly. And I can imagine that it, yeah, it takes being in a space where they can sit with that. And as you've said, do not, not have something that they can turn to, to instantly avoid feeling right. that feeling. Right. No, no quick escape. You really have to pay attention to your feelings. And if you yeah. need to talk to a therapist, there's one right over there. And if you want to talk to a counselor, there's one right over there. So, you know, that's kind of what we try to create. And I know you touched on at the beginning the fact that you do a lot of other things, you know, get them involved in in cooking meals, I, I guess, being outside and interacting with the physical world a lot. You talk yeah. a little bit about that. I mean, it's it's interesting. It seems to me like, you know, that was a lot of my upbringing. I grew up in the city and still people often associate the city with, you know, being inside or not being. A, I was outside a lot. I know that it's really uncommon now these days for that to be part of any kid's life, even kids who aren't addicted to technology per se. So tell me what that's like at the camp and what particular role it plays in this kind of program for these kids. The biggest role is the socialization with other kids that are in the same boat because they're all so used to being the loner in their room with the headphones on or doing whatever they're doing. And so being outside doing any activity is sadly new to them. So when I talk about the life skills and the camp activities, you know, our life skills start with flush the toilet and clean the toothpaste out of the sink because you have a roommate. Mm. You know, put your dirty clothes in the hamper because you have a roommate. But then those will progress through culinary and we even do a mini shark tank program into the second and third week where they come up with inventions and then have to sell it to the judges, that kind of thing, where they have to sort of be creative. But like uh, this summer, we have uh, a program in Santa Barbara. So every Wednesday, for example, is beach day. You know, other than casual conversations, we don't do any therapy, any life skills. We have Mm -hmm. breakfast, we clean our room, and we go to the beach. That's awesome. And they can do surfing lessons or stand up paddleboard or ocean kayak or just build sandcastles. I I have like 24 boogie boards and metal (laughs) detectors, you know, and and just whatever they want to do. The campus in North Carolina, for example, they'll go river rafting on, on that day. That's awesome. Another cool thing about being on college campuses is we get to utilize the facilities on campus. So I like the fact that the kids can see summer school students that aren't much older than them that are busy and working towards what they want in life because it's a really good passive example. Mm-hmm. But then we got to go to the physics department and have the professor, you know, teach him about volcanoes. He exploded a balloon full of hydrogen, and he laid on a bed of nails and let us swing sledgehammers at it. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's, you know, and then there's, you know, there's swimming and there's volleyball and basketball and all the usual sort of outdoorsy stuff that you would do in a camp environment. 
but it really is fun to watch them kind of get that light bulb turned on or open their eyes to different possibilities of what they could do. Most of the universities have like greenhouses or uh, sustainability gardening programs. So we'll rotate through there. On Sunday afternoons, we have like a give back thing. So we'll team up with the local Habitat for Humanities organization or some other charitable organization. So kids actually get to experience giving back to the community. You know, if you're really bored and you have this real problem with boredom, so you got to play Fortnite, why don't you go volunteer somewhere? Mm -hmm. There's plenty to do and plenty of need. So that's kind of all the little pieces that go together to put put together the program that we try to get to these kids. That's really, really amazing. And, you know, I'm sure that, I mean, I found this in my own life. You know, once you make a commitment to go somewhere and do something, you have what brings you back is not just the enjoyment and satisfaction of, of whatever the activity happens to be, but the knowledge that there's other people relying on you, you know, to come back and be there regularly. So I'm, I, I, I think uh, this is a four-week program. I'm sure some people listening are wondering, you know, or maybe have some concern, what, what would keep kids and the family unit as a whole from kind of slipping back into the old patterns after the program is over. It sounds to me like getting them involved in something in their community could be one great way to try to sustain the progress they've made. Are there other other ways in which you do that? Because I'm sure it's a concern, you know, that once the intensity of the, the residential program is over, the, the progress might start to slip again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. After the family workshop and they all go home, we do... Um once a week follow-ups for 90 days with every camper and every family. And that's a question we ask during the program. Are you going to participate? You know, like I said, the flat tire analogy. Are you going to come to the family workshop? Are you going to answer the call when we call? And then we provide additional resources from a couple different, you know, doctor or medical specialists on keep, you know, staying the course and keeping on track. But a lot of that has to do with the family dynamic after the kid goes home. One of my favorite success stories from last year was a family that came to the workshop and took their kid home and then sent us photos of their dining room like a week later. And what they had done is taken those large 3M, you know, if you're doing a a big group presentation, they have the tear off sheets that are Mm -hmm. four feet tall. And they had the dining room was like coated with these 3M papers. And one was the kid's new list of chores and responsibilities. And next to it was mom's new list of chores and responsibilities. (laughs) And dad's new list and, and how we earn screen time uh, mm. on a weekday versus on a weekend. And like every other weekend was no screens, but mm-hmm. a, a family participate activity. And it could be a volunteer or it could be just go to the park and have a picnic. It could be do whatever. But it really takes buy-in from the whole family unit to make it a continued success. That's awesome. So can, I'd like to wrap up by giving you the chance to let people know how to reach you, how to find out more about the camp, how to apply to the camp. I haven't asked you yet, what's the age range of kids who you accept into it? Maybe you can give people a a little bit of an overview. And of course, we will provide links to everything for families who are interested in finding out more. Typically, we target teenagers, so 13 to 17 year olds. But we do accept the occasional 11 and 12 year old, depending on the screening review by the clinical staff. And this year, we actually have a few 18 and 19-year-olds, largely because maturity-wise, social skills-wise, they're, they fall within the 12, 13, 14 range. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think 
next year we might create a bit of a different program too because we get a lot of calls for will you take my 26 year old will you take my 28 year old i even had three calls this year will you take my husband wow and it's like you know i can't be all things to all people but i want to help as many as i can and i don't want to have a hard cutoff at 17 if we can reach an 18 or 19 year old too who's not too far gone sure so that's the age range and we do a very tight you know typically we do a 32 kids per four week session per location because in my summer camp experience you know when i have kids that are excited to be here and make new friends and swim in the deep end and all that i can do 600 kids a week at a ymca facility or a boy scout facility i can't do that in a therapeutic model so we have a three to one camper to staff ratio which is ridiculously high and we only do about 32 kids per four-week session because they need so much attention and so much help to get back to where they should normally be as normal kids. So aside from that, our website is resetsummercamp.com. The phone number on the site is my mobile number. You'll reach me if you call it or text it. Programs remaining uh, this summer are, we still have space available in Santa Barbara and North Carolina. Uh, registration is closed for Texas. And the, the price for the four-week clinical program is seventy-eight fifty, which in summer camp world is really expensive, and mm-hmm. in residential treatment world is like the cheapest game in town. <laughs> so that's sort of why I say we're in that middle tipping point. Yes. The cool thing about our program is we do have the availability to offer tuition assistance, and we've partnered with a couple lending companies that do therapeutic financing. So we have we have a couple um, moms who presented themselves as you know single moms on restricted incomes and mm-hmm. their kids are coming to camp with with their simple deposit and their payment plan. Wow! So it's not entirely out of reach, even though the the initial price tag might sound a little daunting to some. The nearest program for what we do is a more extreme wilderness experience, and you're looking at twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Yeah, no, this is great. I mean, I'm so glad to have you on. I know that there's a huge need for this and a huge demand. It's really both sobering to hear about what you're dealing with, but really inspiring, you know, to hear about this. And I, I really wanted to have you on primarily so that the parents out there, and if there's any kids listening in the age range, you know, that, that you're dealing with, I, I would hope that people could hear this and have some hope and be able to reach out to you and either because they could benefit from your camp or if they contact you and it turns out that they don't fit, I'm sure you could point them to other resources that where they could get help and just know that they're not alone in this. Absolutely. I mean, what, that reminded me, one thing we tell all the kids is that th- we're, we're never telling you, don't be on your phone, don't play a game, don't be on social media which is different from an alcohol or a drug program. Right. Um, you know, we live in a tech world. Unless you're going to you know, move to the jungle and, and be completely <laughs> off the grid, that it's ridiculous for me to tell you never to be on your device. So we do a lot of healthy relationships with your device. So if there are kids listening right now, this isn't, you know, this isn't punishment. This is learn how to get what you want in life, which is to be you know, successful and to be on your own. That's really awesome. Well, thanks so much, Michael, for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for everything that you're doing. My pleasure, sir. Bye now. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Michael Jacobus, the founder of the Reset Summer Camp for Kids with Technology Addictions. You can find out more about Michael and Reset Summer Camp at ResetSummerCamp.com. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. 
Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. And find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control of your smartphone at tapintomindfulness.com. Thank you.